uh, I have a confession. Uh, I often make the same jokes at dinner parties because uh, it's new people each time. And Cassie just told you all my timeshare joke. So uh, it's really uncomfortable. I got to come up with new material. So if you want to see me be a comic, come to dinner party. Uh, no, it is so good to be back with you all. As Cassie mentioned, this is our first time back, first time back in the pulpit. Um, we just really feel blessed that we are a part of a community um, in which there is a diversity of voices that can share the gospel and can take this pulpit. Um, and we want to continue to foster that type of environment, an environment in which we collectively reflect on what it looks like to be the people of God. So shout out to, again, everyone who uh, filled in and helped us out and gave Cassie and I a week off. Well, we are starting a new series on the Apostles' Creed, um, which you just said together, and that might have been really uncomfortable for some of you. Some of you are like, what cult did I just walk into? I promise you didn't just walk into a cult. You walked into an ancient faith. You walked into a space and a community that believes that the things that have transcended time um, are important. And the Apostles' Creed is one of those things that has stood the test of time. It was written in the fourth century as a way of helping those who were joining the Christian faith know exactly what they were jumping into. They would be introduced to this liturgical poem as a way of knowing what the core of Christianity was. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's an ancient poem that continues to go throughout time because it still holds true. It's not scripture, but it uses straightforward scriptural language to tell us the story of the text. It tells us from creation to redemption. It covers incarnation and Pentecost. It covers the whole gamut of the book we call the Bible. It's important for us to be reminded that our story and our church are rooted in an ancient faith. Christianity didn't begin 100 years ago, didn't begin 500 years ago with the Reformation. It began in the first century with a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. And these are the beliefs and the thoughts his closest followers had about him. We are a part of an ancient faith. And then the Apostles' Creed is also not simply a routine repetition of doctrine. It's not like a way for us to brainwash you. It's a liturgical poem that moves our heart. It's something that when said and meant is designed to pull us back into the reality of our faith and the beauty of what it means to be the church of Christ, that we are pledging our allegiance to one God revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To declare, I believe in God, the very first line is to articulate trust in the holy other God. This is the confession of the church of Christ stretched across time and space, declaring belief, trust, faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God revealed in Jesus Christ. 
But while saying, I believe in God, might have been easy for one to say in the fourth century when this creed was penned, it is a little bit more difficult to say, I believe in God in 2022. It's a little bit more difficult to articulate that in the spaces we find ourselves in our secular age. Now, when I say secular, I do not mean a place of anti-religion. Like, I grew up in the time in which it was always the sacred versus the secular. K-love or K-pop, you can't do both. It's defined as being anti-religion, and I don't think that's a good place to start. I also don't think secular being defined as a space of neutrality is helpful either. Because if we've learned anything over the last couple of decades, uh, no one is neutral. And so to claim that secular is just a space of neutrality is not really the case. Rather, I think we should define secular as the space of contested belief. The space of contested belief. Here's what this feels like. It feels like we all know someone in the places we live, work, and play who believes something radically different than we do. We know people who are incredible. They are nice, they are ethical, and they are intelligent, and they believe nothing like what we believe. It's a space of contested belief. We've all come to realize that what you believe, what I believe, cannot be taken as the default of society anymore. This is what Charles Taylor, a philosopher who wrote a massive book, who it's like over 900 pages. I read the abridged version. But he calls this living in a cross-pressured space meaning that we are surrounded by spiritual options. We are surrounded by different definitions of truth. We are surrounded by different sets of beliefs that push, that tug, that pressure us into considering what do I believe? And do I want to continue to hold to that belief? The questions, who is God? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life, the most core questions a human being can ask, are answered in radically different ways depending on who you are and where you live. Someone who lives 20 feet across the apartment complex from me could answer those questions in a radically different way than I will. We live in a cross-pressured space. And in the face of that cross-pressure, in the face of a multitude of options, we are all plagued by doubt. In a wide variety of options, doubt is the natural outcome. Have you ever made a quick decision and immediately regretted your decision? The introduction of options means that you will always have doubt. So doubt is the natural companion to a space of contested belief. Whether you are the most devout atheist or the most stubborn of homeschooling Christians, the fact that another option exists will always plant the weed of doubt in our well-ordered worldview. I remember being 10 years old. Again, I mentioned the K-Love experience. Like we... 
we watched all the Christ- Veggie Tales, all the things, and um, grew up in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Like, well, I was baptized into it literally and culturally. And I remember being 10 years old, spending a uh, couple weeks of my summer at my grandparents' house. And just this one night, randomly waking up and being unable to fall asleep. And I remember being in this unfamiliar environment, and I couldn't help but think, what if this is all there is? What if the God I've been hearing about isn't even there? And what if all that exists beyond death is just cold emptiness? And I remember uh, really roaming through my grandparents' big cold house, just unsure of what to do with this existential crisis. What if everything that I believe is not real? And until I cried myself to sleep clinging to a Five Will Goes West blanket, I couldn't get rid of my doubts. And that may have been the first memory of those moments I have, but it definitely wasn't the last. Many of you know that feeling of being plagued with doubt. Sometimes my faith feels more like I believe in God, but help my unbelief. I can't get past these doubts I have. Or I think of Julian Barnes, an English novelist, who remembers that as a child there were three unmentionable topics in his British home. That was politics, religion, and sex. You don't talk about these things. Do not mention them. And when he was finally old enough, his mother let him know that she didn't want any of that religious mumbo-jumbo at her funeral. Julian Barnes is probably the quintessential secularist, this one who had no memory of going to church, never remembers um, being at a religious service or having any kind of faith other than what he had in science. And in his memoir on death called Nothing to be Frightened of, Barnes, the the atheist turned agnostic at 60, writes this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Now, you could focus on that first part and throw your hands up and go, look at the godless culture that Hollywood and Darwin and our universities have created. People don't believe in God anymore. Or you could reflect on that second part. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. No matter who you are and no matter what faith you hold tight to, this phrase describes the tension between doubt and faith that we all feel. That we all feel the pull of wanting to believe and wanting to hold to something bigger than ourselves, but we can't help but think, but what if? We are racked with a tension of faith and doubt. So what do we do with that? Can we ever wholeheartedly declare, I believe in God without reservation? Can we ever rid ourselves of the existential angst or the moments of unbelief? Do we ever feel certain about God and his invitation into a new life? Can we ever get to that place where we are completely free of our doubts? 
As we wrestle with this, I think Jesus' encounter with Thomas in John 20 offers us the most beautiful glimpse into God's reception of the doubter. So if you've got your Bible, you've got your phone, turn with me to John 20. While you turn there, I want to give you a little backstory on Thomas. For the Gospel of John, which is a biography of Jesus of Nazareth, written by a close friend, uh, John gives more screen time to Thomas than any other gospel. Thomas is kind of mentioned a few more times, and I think you'll see why soon. In John 11, Jesus has just been run out of town um, on threat of death. He's been teaching, and those who are hearing his teaching don't like it, so they pick up stones, and they're like, we are going to kill you by mob violence. And Jesus and his disciples run out of town. Just after that, he receives a messenger that says, hey, your buddy Lazarus, who is one of your best friends, is about to die. Coming on and off. Uh, he is, Lazarus is about to die. And so Jesus decides that he will go see Lazarus in three days' time. He tells his disciples, this isn't going to end in death. We're going to go see Lazarus. And this is Thomas's response. So Thomas called the twin. This is verse 16 of John 11. He said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas was a ride or die from the beginning. He was ready to go and face whatever Jesus was going to face. In John 11, Thomas was ready to go to his death with Jesus. Just prior to Lazarus's resurrection, Thomas exercises extreme faith, trust in Jesus, going as far as being willing to die alongside him. Then in John 14, verses 1 through 5, Jesus says this. He's teaching to his disciples. He says, let your not let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas is ride or die, but he's also the guy who's going like, Jesus, you're speaking in riddles. He's the one full of questions, full of faith one moment, full of questions the next. I cannot think of anyone better to describe the human condition than Thomas, full of faith, vigor, zeal one moment, and racked with questions and doubt the next. Does that not feel like your experience with the Christian faith? Full of doubt, full of zeal, full of questions, full of faith, full of trust, full of trepidation. We exist in this cross-pressured space. In John 20, we pick up just after the resurrection of Jesus. If you're unfamiliar with the story, Jesus of Nazareth came to the earth and spoke a message saying, 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was a direct challenge to the Roman government. This was a direct challenge to the religious leaders who had power and control. This was a direct challenge, and as a result, he was executed on a Roman cross. Brutally tortured, brutally mocked, and executed on a cross. Three days later, some of his female disciples, female followers, would encounter Jesus, meaning he literally, physically, bodily, his heart was stopped. It started beating again. He wasn't breathing. He started breathing again. And Jesus had shown himself to all of the disciples except for one, one who has unfortunately got the nickname Doubting Thomas, picking up in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now I think it's fair to say Thomas might have had some intellectual doubts. Uh, No one has single-handedly defeated death like this before. Sure, he's seen a few resurrections, like, you know, resurrections are a dime a dozen for these guys. But Jesus has been dead for three days. Sure, Thomas had some intellectual doubts. But I almost wonder if Thomas's objections were less intellectual as much as they were simply he couldn't bear the thought of being disappointed again. Thomas witnessed the healings, the exorcisms, the miracles, and even two other resurrections. But one of his closest friends, mentors, and teachers has just died. The one who taught him to pray and deliver us from evil was brutally murdered. The one Thomas thought was the long-awaited Messiah who would liberate his people from the Roman Empire was just executed on a Roman cross. The Israelites had been looking for one to lead them into independence, and Thomas was certain Jesus was the one Despite all that he had witnessed, Jesus was dead. I wonder if Thomas's objections were less intellectual and more of an unwillingness to be disappointed one more time. Do you feel the weight of Thomas's objection? The weight of his doubt? Do you sense his disappointment, his disillusionment, his frustration? The frustration he has with these friends who are rejecting the outcome of one of the most traumatic events in Thomas's life. Think about some of the hard, difficult times you've experienced and someone going, hey, magic just fixed that. Like you would be frustrated too. You would have your objections too. You've been there. I've been there. We've been there. When you received the diagnosis you were specifically praying against. When someone else receives the check that you could really use. When that prayer goes unanswered another year. 
When you continue to struggle with infertility while someone else celebrates a pregnancy. When you are wading through the emotional fallout of church failure. When you feel pushed down by life again. We all know the weight of disappointment. And we know the doubt that comes with it. I wonder if Thomas's objection was less of an intellectual hurdle as much as it was not being able to bear the weight of being disappointed again. But in the midst of Thomas's disappointment and doubt, God in Jesus draws close. Going on in chapter 20, looking at verse 26. Eight days later, Thomas had sat in his doubt, his disappointment, and his disillusionment for eight days, angry with all of his friends. Eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. God invites us to come to himself fully human full of hope and full of cold, hard facts, full of questions and trepidation. Jesus shows up in the midst of Thomas's doubts and invites him to explore the wounds of his love. Jesus is not off-put by Thomas's doubts. Jesus is not offended by Thomas's questions. Jesus takes Thomas's doubts and uses them as an opportunity to draw close, to invite Thomas to know him more thoroughly. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Rather, it is a part of the faithful life. Take one of the most influential scriptures, the Great Commission, where we find doubt and faith held together. Now, I know any of you who grew up in church probably had to memorize this at some point, but I'm going to read it for you anyway. Now, the 11 disciples, including Thomas, went to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. They worshiped. And they doubted, and they changed the world. Including Thomas, these were the disciples that not only witnessed all the miracles, all the healings, and the resurrection, the actual defeat of death, and yet they doubted. And their doubt was not disqualifying. Doubt is not unfaithfulness. Doubt is not disobedience. Doubt is not sinning. Doubt is the natural companion to options. All doubt means is that you have been ex exposed to an option that you have not yet fully considered. All doubt is is the natural companion to options. Even at the Great Commission, the disciples held doubt and faith together. 
This is not to say doubt is a pleasant experience or that doubt is fun or that my goal is to like put more doubts in your head because I'm fairly certain I don't need to do that. You are full of those enough for yourself. Doubt is the very air we breathe. But even at the Great Commission, the disciples held doubt and faith together. I love this quote from James K.A. Smith. We don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. We are all Thomas now. Thomas embodies the human condition, full of faith and trust one moment, and full of questions and doubt the next. So for us to say, I believe in God, it is not made without doubt. It is not made without questions. It is not made without trepidation. It is to trust in the midst of doubt. Ben Myers, a scholar who wrote this um, great work on the Apostles' Creed, if you are interested in more resources, we'll make sure um, we include a link to that and something this coming week. It's called The Apostles' Creed, A Guide to an Ancient Catechism. And on the subject of faith or belief, this is what he writes. Christian belief is not an irrational leap into the dark. It is more like a tasting dish that you have never tried. You have seen other people enjoy it. You have read the reviews. The chef swears you'll like it. There are good grounds for trusting, but you will never know for sure until you try it. Taste and see that the Lord is good, sings the psalmist. The first is an act of trust that gives rise to an ever-increasing confidence, which in turn nourishes a deep and a more knowledgeable trust. Faith is not certainty. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is an ever-growing trust in the nature of God. So as the worship team joins me, I want to offer four ways in which we can cultivate a life of faith amid the cross pressures of our moment. Now, this is not an apologetics thing. I understand apologetics. I understand why um, people enjoy apologetics. Uh, but I, I don't have a high regard for apologetics, not because um, I don't like intellectual things or studious movements, um, but I feel like apologetics in some ways um, gives up on the realities of God. Um, God is not like a thing in the universe to be measured, to be understood, or to be wrapped around. He is the very definition of being like, we do not exist without God. So it's like, how do you measure existence? How do you talk about existence? Yes, I get it. There are some good arguments. But the very ancient understanding of who God is, is that the very fact that we breathe, move, and have our being is in of itself a reminder that there's something that we exist within, and that is God. So this isn't an apologetics thing. Rather, these are um, maybe some things to consider as we work through moments of doubt and faith. First, rethink faith not as certainty or control, but as trust. 
The biblical concept of faith is trusting in the nature of God. It is not an illogical step or something done in contrary to the evidence. We are not called to a life of certainty. We are called to a life of trust. Here's the reality. You do not have certainty in anything in life. I don't think any of you pulled the records for this building or checked out its foundation before you walked in here or looked in the walls. I haven't. But yet, in confidence, you stepped into a building in which you did not have certainty wouldn't fall down on you. I think, I believe I'm going to be able to go out to eat after this, but I haven't checked my bank account. It could be cleared out but I have confidence and I'm making decisions so that I can go out to eat. I believe that Hawaii is real, but I've never been. I know some of you have, I've seen the pictures, but how do I not know you were on a green screen? We exist all the time without certainty. The aim of faith is not certainty, but it's trust. An ever-growing trust in the nature of our God. And the only way to test that is to trust and to grow in trust. Second, doubt your doubts. I know that sounds cliche, but I think it holds true. We should be equal opportunity doubters, not just of belief, but also of disbelief. We oftentimes think of doubts and cynicism as sophisticated and intelligent set against naive and irrational beliefs. Let's just challenge that assumption that just because you're more cynical doesn't necessarily mean you're more intelligent or more thoughtful. I think a far more constructive and charming posture than doubt turned cynic is doubt turned into curiosity. May doubt be the energy that drives you towards seeking truth. I think Jesus would be the first one to say, seek truth wherever you find it, to take it to its full extent. And he trusts that at the end of that movement towards truth, you'll discover something about him and about yourself. I'll be the first to say that in seasons of doubt, some of the best things that I can do is a lot of reading a lot of podcast listening, a lot of just talking to other people. And I just find that in my curiosity that my faith is built. It doesn't take away the doubts. I have not found the short, contrite answer to free myself of doubts. I don't think that's out there. But I think when doubt is turned into curiosity, you find a space in which faith can grow. Number three, strive for emotional health. Wrestling with anything, including doubt, becomes exponentially more complicated when we struggle with our emotions. By asking some simple diagnostic questions about your emotional state, you recognize that we are integrated beings, both body and mind. This is not to say if you have questions of doubt, you're all of a sudden emotionally unhealthy. That is not at all what I'm saying. But I am saying that in seasons of emotional unhealth, I find that I struggle with my faith a lot more. I love this quote from D.A. Carson. Sometimes, sometimes being the keyword, doubt is fostered by sleep deprivation. 
especially in those who are overworked or our students. It comes from bad habit, habits, zealous perfectionism, and bad time management. He's calling me out. The point is that as human beings, our mind, body, matter, spirit all work together. And if you push yourself to the limit, you are inviting depression, breaking down, and looking at the world through dark, gloomy habits. And this is my favorite line. And then the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get some sleep. Amen. I could stop there. Get some sleep. Sometimes doubt isn't a matter of all these intellectual questions. It's just simply the fact that you've been really unhealthy for probably far too long. This doesn't mean that just because you are healthy, all your doubts will go away, but it might be a place to start to ask those questions. Am I healthy right now? The final thing I would invite you to do is lean into the community of God. God is not unknown. He can be known. And joining in with the songs of the saints, dinners with your micro church, and the stories of God, God's activity in others' lives creates an environment in which faith can grow. Now, not every church is faithful, and not every story is accurate, but when a community is committed to the practices of Jesus, one discovers good soil for faith. A place in which our doubts and our faith can be held together. This is to say we need one another. Have you ever come into church broken and just unsure of what's next? And the first line of that first song just means something different to you. I got into a habit in college, in undergrad, I went to a Christian university, so chapel was a part of daily life. And I got into this habit of not singing, but listening to other people sing. I know that sounds weird, and now you're like, I don't want to sit next to Alex. Uh, it really wasn't to just hear other people sing. It was to be carried by someone else's faith. There are some days in which you come into the community, and you're like, I cannot, I can't, I can't make this up for myself. And sometimes you just need the voice of another singing just slightly off pitch, but really zealous to be like, I can go a little further. Have you ever been just disillusioned and you go into a coffee with someone and they share not about the highs that God has taken them through, but the way he's been faithful in the valley? And it's just the thing you needed to keep going for a little bit longer. This journey of faith, this journey of belief in God is not done individually. It is done as a collective. With every eye in the Apostles' Creed, it is not about the individual. It is about us together declaring our belief in God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Take time to be in the community of God to hear his, sto the, his story spoken through the lives of saints. So reframe faith as trust. Doubt your doubts. Strive for emotional health and lean into the community of God. 
I'll wrap up with this. In John 20, verse 29, right after he has invited Thomas to see the wounds on his hand and touch the wound in his side, Jesus says this after Thomas has said, my God and my Lord, Jesus says this, have you believed because you have seen in me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Is simply Jesus saying, you believed because you saw me in the flesh. Blessed are those who have not seen me in the flesh. I believe Jesus is saying, blessed are those who trust without certainty. Blessed are the followers of Jesus who trust even when life is hard, when dreams are crushed, when life is not what you expected, and when the diagnosis is worst case. Blessed are you who practice trust in God even with your doubt, your trepidation, your objections, and your questions. Blessed are you who come fully human, full of trust, and full of doubts. Let's pray. Lord, in the example of Thomas, we see one who is very much like ourselves. plagued with doubt, uncertain of what the future will be. And yet in your grace and in your goodness, you drew close to him. We pray that as we prepare to take the table of the Lord, as we prepare to come to the representation of the wounds that you bore, that it would be a similar moment, that it would be like us seeing the wounds in your hand and the wounds in your side that we would once again be reminded of what it is to trust in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.